With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Sports Bubble, a production of iHeartRadio and Treefort Media. My name is Jensen Karp, and I'm a sports fan. And yes, we've hit some road bumps, but here we are in August with MLB, NHL, and NBA games on TV, MLS set with their semifinals, UFC events, NASCAR races, PGA, and pro wrestling all moving along. This is, hands down, the busiest August in sports history. Sure, we thought Yoannis Espedes was dead for about 20 minutes, and Terrence Davis is walking around the Disney World bubble with a hole in his mask as a political statement, but for now, we're KIT, keeping it together with scotch tape and some Elmer's glue. And I know this because I'm still interviewing athletes and sports industry professionals to find out how they're doing during this very weird time. Because someone has to. This is the Sports Bubble with Jensen Carp. Sean Elliott is the perfect athlete to talk to in 2020. He knows firsthand what it's like to do two very relevant things. One, win a championship during a short and somewhat criticized season. And two, play the game of basketball while juggling the extreme fear of getting sick and dying. So I couldn't be happier about having this chat with the former member of the San Antonio Spurs and one of the greatest modern-day college basketball players to step on the court. He was a two-time All-American and Wooden Award winner at the University of Arizona, where he broke Lou Alcindor's all-time Pac-10 career scoring record and still holds the school's record for most points. He was the number three pick in the NBA draft, where he was a two-time All-Star and was an essential member of the NBA Championship Spurs in 1999, a season that got a late start thanks to a player strike. Go ahead and Google Memorial Day Miracle to see his truly insane buzzer beater against the Portland Trailblazers. And keep in mind, he did all this while battling a crippling kidney disease, something that got worse every year while somehow his stats got better. It wasn't until late in his 12-year NBA career that he finally slowed down and his ailment caught up with him. And that's only because he needed a kidney transplant, something he miraculously recovered from fast enough to join the Spurs for two more seasons, one where they had the best record in the league. The dude knows hardship and he's an inspiration during these times. We talk about his health struggles, the difficulties with announcing from home, and his terrifying experiences with racism growing up and playing in Arizona. Today, it's a candid talk with Sean Elliott in the Sports Bubble. Call from... Sean Elliott. To accept, press 1. Press 
Well, I wanted to start off uh, by saying, you know, because people obviously are at like varying degrees of going outside these days. So I wanted to know where you've been laying low and staying safe these last few months. For me, uh, I've been laying low at the house. Uh, honestly, um, I've been really careful about who I come in contact with. For the first four months or so of quarantine, I mean, I know we're around the, the four-month, five-month period, uh, I went into maybe one or two other buildings besides my, my house. Uh, and I wore a mask when I was going in. So the most I've done is walk the dogs around the neighborhood. I'm not trying to go into, into any type of public places. I'm, I'm considered a high, ri- high risk because of my kidney transplant that I had in 99. So I take immunosuppressing uh, drugs every day. And so my doctors basically have told me just to you know, keep my distance and be smart and be aware of my surroundings. Yeah, I mean, I was going to get into that, obviously, with quarantining in a high-risk situation. Like, uh, for you, yeah. y- y- you don't listen to sort of what other people are, are suggesting. You have to go at it with a completely different set of protections. I mean, my wife and I yeah. uh, don't have any pre-existing conditions and still find ourselves like, why do I need to go sit in a restaurant? For you, it's a completely different fear. Yeah, no, I haven't sat in a restaurant since uh, March 11th, and that was the... Uh, day that the NBA season was suspended. Yeah. And so we were actually sitting down at dinner uh, and it started, you know, the, the tweets or Twitter started going crazy. And uh, we saw that the NBA season was canceled. You know, we go home and a few days later, we're kind of in lockdown. So I, I haven't been in a restaurant uh, again. I mean, since, uh, since that date. And so I can't afford the, the risk to put myself in a situation where, you know, people are three or four feet away from me and I end up getting sick. Yeah, absolutely. I did want to talk to you a little bit about your battle with kidney disease, which I know you celebrated recently. Congratulations, a 20-year anniversary of the procedure last year, I believe. Yeah. While doing research, it was insane for me to think about the pain and discomfort you had during your basketball career, especially in the 99 season with the Memorial Day miracle. I mean, how were you able to play with this stuff going on? I mean, that's such a basic question, but you were an all-star and a champion and you were kind of weeks away from needing surgery. Did, did you not feel that kind of horrific, you know, kidney pain? Yeah. Well, you know, I, my, my whole saga started way back in the 92, 93 season uh, where I had an, an injury and my back was really hurting and bothering me for the second half of that season and I was taking a lot of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories at the time. I was taking everything um, under the sun, uh, even taking a drug now that's outlawed. You can't even give it to people anymore. Wow. And so, uh, you know, I was doing whatever I could to play during that season. And it was after that season that my kidney disease was discovered. Um, but I did have, at that point, I did have a lot of pain in my midsection. Everybody thought it was back spasms, and that's how it was treated. Uh, then later on that summer, it was, you know, again, my kidney disease was discovered. But, you know, I played with, uh, you know, elevated creatinine, which is an uh, uh, indication of your kidney function. I played with elevated creatinine for uh, the rest of my career, wow. the, so the, the last seven years. And so there were times, uh, many times, there, especially uh, when I was in Detroit, I'd just come off of two months of a high doses of prednisone therapy. Uh, which really wreaks havoc on your body. And there were many times when I'd come off that, like where I was going to walk into half court to start the game, I would feel like my legs were water balloons. Yeah. I had so much watery tension in my body and in my hands. And as the game progressed, a little bit of that would go away. But you could see after, uh, Jensen, like, you, you, you know, everybody gets taped up before the game uh, around your ankles. And so when I would 
cut the tape off um, at the bottom where my ankles were, it looked like I used to call it a pirate's leg. Mm-hmm. My calf, you know, my thighs and my calf would be swollen. And then where my ankles were taped, it was incredibly skinny. Like it stopped the fluid wow. from running down into my ankle and my feet. So it was something that you know, I played with for pretty much over a 12-year career. I played with kidney disease for seven years, so for a majority of my career. It's unbelievable. The statistics you were able to put up with that. I mean, did your, did your teammates know that you were battling this stuff? I think people started to find out after I had failed my physical when I tried to get traded from Detroit to Houston. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I failed that physical, uh, then you know, it became pretty public knowledge that there was something going on uh, with me, and players didn't quite know. They thought, well, I had something going on with my kidneys, but you know, no one really knew to what extent. And even at that point, Jensen, I didn't know because my diagnosis early on was something called minimal change disease. Mm-hmm. And that meant they went in, I had a kidney biopsy. They went in and they take out a piece of your kidney and they look at it under a microscope and it had minimal change. But later on, the disease was actually, it was early signs of focal sclerosis. And so later on, when the disease started to really uh, ramp up and uh, really start to damage my kidneys, then it became apparent uh, what was really wrong with me. Well, I'm so happy to talk to you because no one knows what it's like to play through adversity more than you. So let's talk about the NBA bubble. Uh, We have a few games under our belt now. The process uh, seems to be working against coronavirus. What are your thoughts about what you've seen so far? Oh, man, there's been a lot of positive signs. I got to tell you, a lot of things that really uh, made me feel proud to be an NBA alum, uh, obviously a former player and a member of the Spurs organization. First off, I mean, the fact that the NBA is leading the way when it comes to all sports leagues. Yep. They've been extremely conscious of their players, of the fans, uh, of personnel. Uh, they've done a first-class job of presenting the games, protecting everybody involved. Uh, I wasn't sure how they'd be able to pull it off. You know, One of my main concerns was, how do you actually play games without fans? Right. I mean, fans matter. Fans, to me, they're everything. I mean, you put the fans in the stands, they provide the environment to give players adrenaline. It's a huge boost for the home team. Uh, you know, to me, fans mean everything. And so how are you going to pull off the, you know, the same type of excitement without those people in the stands? And they, the way they stage the games, the way they're, they're shot, I, I think they've done a tremendous job. Even you know, piping in fake crowd noise. Yeah. It, it actually, actually works. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've called three games so far, and uh, they've been a lot of fun. We've, you know, the games have been exciting. I think the fans are enjoying the product. And so in that regard, I think the NBA has a huge feather in the cap, especially if they can get all the way to the finals and actually pull this thing off. Right. And, and, and the other part that I'm just extremely proud of is the way that they've uh, helped push along the social justice issues. Mm-hmm. They didn't censor their players. They, matter of fact, they encouraged their freedom of speech. Uh, they enhanced the guys' platforms. And, yeah. and, and, the, and the players have been, to me, they've been very responsible with their message, and they've been tolerant. I mean, uh, you know, I said last night on our telecast that the players right now, they, they've set a, a great example for society. You know, they, uh, you have guys that stand for the national anthem, and you have guys that kneel for the national anthem. Mm-hmm. No one's being pressured to kneel. No one's being pressured to stand. Uh, Myers Leonard stood the other day, and after the national anthem, he's on his house, and gives him a fist bump and says, hey, you know, you're... You're still our brother. We're still, we stand with you too, yeah. you know, and the, the guys are extremely tolerant of each other's stance and they understand each other. 
And so to me, that's a great lesson for society. And these guys are just been great examples. Yeah, and, and you, you brought it up a little bit. How has announcing from home been for you? I mean, I know that everyone's used to being there on the court, being able to see what's going on. Is it different for you? I mean, I've seen some of the clips of, you know, local broadcasts where the kind of Zoom vibe of the boxes on top of the screen. I mean, what, what, is it difficult? It's, it's tricky. It's a little trickier. It's harder to even call a game. You know, some of these arenas nowadays, they're, they're taking away the announcers from the first couple rows and putting them up, up high in the arena. And I, and I don't like that because it, you take away the nuances of the game. You don't get to see the interactions between the coaches and the players or the players on the court. You miss a lot of that. I, I, it, to me, it kind of sterilizes the game. And so you want to get the best kind of feel across to the viewers. And so it is a little bit more difficult. There, there was even times last night where I you know, misidentified a player mm-hmm. because I'm watching it off the screen, you know, 15 feet away. And so, you know, sometimes that's going to happen, and and that's okay. I mean, we we understand uh, what it is now, and, and sometimes those mistakes are going to be made, but uh, that's not a big deal as long as you can still get your point across, get your message across. Uh, I, I think we'll be just fine. But yeah, I mean, it, it still is a little tricky because we can't see exactly what Pop is gesturing or, or what what he's saying to uh, some of the players out there on the court, or the interaction between the players if a, if the pass is missed or a defensive assignment is blown. You can see the communication between the players a lot clearer when you're on the first or second row and you're actually there. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notify, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This past week, we saw games like the Rockets-Mavericks, where the final score was 153 to 149. It went into OT, but the truth is this game would have been, I don't know, 10 points less if they didn't go into OT. Are are we to believe these games are part of the canon of NBA we know and love? Are they playing defense? Is it? I mean, it just seems there was another high score uh, this past weekend as well. I mean, is this normal basketball? Should I should I be watching it with the same eye? Oh well, that's a that's a tricky question there. Because, uh, you know, I've been saying all year long that the vendors in this league now are handcuffed. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're, you're defenseless. You're absolutely defenseless as a defender. 
when I first got in the league in 89, you know, the, the veterans would always talk about using the arm bar on defense. And, you know, the, the kiss of death as a defender was if an offensive player was able to get his body into your body, if it was torso to torso, he got you. Mm-hmm. And so you could use that arm bar to keep his body from getting into you. Because if you know, as an offensive player, if you know how to use your body and pull your arms through, you can get physical with the defender, and there's nothing he could do with you if you get body-to-body with him. Well, nowadays, that's the only way that you can guard anybody. Right. And you can't put up that arm bar. You see guys that are moving and sliding their feet with their hands in the air like a splayed kind of chicken, if you will. Your hands are up there and they're back, so you show the official you're not touching the player. And the fact that everybody's shooting three balls. Yeah. So when you look at a court, and I, I made this, uh, I, I told my producer the other day when I was watching the Rockets game, actually, I was watching part of the Rockets game. To me, because everybody's so spread on the court, it almost looked like there weren't 10 guys out there. Yeah, right. Because everybody's guarding the three-point line. If James Harden beats his initial defender, he may have one health defender that rotates over, and if he can sidestep him, it's an easy layup. It's almost like a, a drill right now on the offensive end of the floor. I mean, if you're an offensive player, you're going to score the ball. Because yeah. uh, the, the defender is just going to have a, a nightmarish time trying to stop you. So it's kind of twofold as to why everybody's scoring so many points. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been, like you said, I guess the three point game, it's so. NBA involved now like when we you know when I watched you coming up and when you know in the 80s and 90s it was such like a slam dunk game you know it was like we we gravitated towards Shaq and Barkley and David Robinson obviously with you like guys who were big men who were driving underneath and now I I assume every kid coming up wants to be Steph Curry every kid coming up wants to be Harden so they're almost shooting from the half court line at times yeah it's insane I mean you have to guard a lot of people right when they come over half court I mean the one that comes to mind is Damian Lillard yeah I mean he's got in the gym range and, and as soon as he comes across the half court line, you have to guard him. And so it just it spreads everybody out. I and mean, if you watch a an old '80s or '90s game, or even early 2000s, the court looks condensed. Every everybody is within the three point line. If you penetrate, it's not beating just your defender. You might have to beat two or three other other guys back there uh, because there's so many people in the paint now. It's just a, a wide open free for all, and three point ball is you know largely responsible for that. You have a rare perspective on this whole thing because you were part of the 99 championship Spurs, a season cut short by the labor strike, and you faced all the asterisks talk back then. What's your answer to that criticism then and now, I guess? You know, obviously you guys had that, and, and now whoever wins this championship is going to uh, hear the same thing. Can, can this be defended as a serious championship? Uh, yeah, it can be. It can be for sure. Uh, and, you know, we won in 99. We heard the talk after, and to me it was puzzling because the people that were criticizing us were the same people that we went through mm-hmm. and and the fact that if they had won they wouldn't have asked for an asterisk next to the championship and it's not like we played a shortened playoff schedule right the season was the season was shortened but the playoffs were exactly the same amount of games like you said oh you only got to win eight games to win a championship that's completely different mm-hmm. but we had to win the required amount of games that everybody else had played previous years so uh, previously so I don't get the asterisk talk. Right. I mean, you have to play the same playoff format. And so it's going to be the same thing here. Uh, you're, you're still taking the best teams. The only thing is that you're, you're not going to have really, to me, any kind of home court advantage because you're not going to have the fans behind you. So I almost think it's going to be tougher. Yeah. I almost think it's going to be uh, tougher for a team 
you know, the Lakers have well, home court advantage or the Bucks have home court. I'm putting home court advantage in quotation fingers. Yep. If they have that, you don't really have it. You know, Milwaukee is not going to have their fans behind them. So it's going to be much more difficult for them that they're facing the Lakers in a seven game series on really, which is essentially a neutral court, as opposed to facing them at their arena where they have the fans getting behind them and juicing them up. Yeah, I, I, I'll tell you, the season did give me a lot of hope this last weekend when the Raptors did beat the Lakers because it does seem, okay, you know, the level playing field feels feels much better now. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. Uh, yeah. You know, there's a lot to talk about there because, you know, for me, I, and I joked about it on our air, I, I wasn't the best practice player. You know, I, I, I played well in practice, well enough in practice, but for me, when the lights were on and people were there, it brought a heightened sense of focus for me. And so I felt like I performed much better uh, when people were in the stands than just a practice or a scrimmage situation. And I'm sure that might, that might hold true for some of the players that are playing. But again, the NBA has done such a great job of kind of staging the games that maybe it, it doesn't impact guys. Yeah. Well, uh, as you said, above and beyond your historic run with the Spurs, you're also now a broadcaster for, for the team. And mm-hmm. Popovich has said that his uh, main focus in Orlando is player development. Guys like Keldon Johnson, Eubanks, Luca, Lonnie Walker. Yeah. I When I heard that, I, I'm, I'm a god, I'm a Popovich stan. I love the dude. I just am always nervous with him putting his health on the line, uh, you know, because he's obviously in a heightened age group of for just to get young guys reps. I mean, that bummed me out. I mean, do you think it's still worth it to hear they're not going for the championship? They're just trying to get guys into the game? Well, they, they, they see the writing on the wall. I mean, there's no Lamarcus Aldridge. Mm. Uh, he's out with a shoulder injury. Uh, no Trey Lyle. So you're missing arguably your best player and Lamarcus. And you know, I'm sure, you know, you look at it and, and the situation where you have to win a certain amount of games just to get in a playoff situation. And then you're probably, are most likely played the Lakers in the first round. And you kind of have to understand and be realistic yeah. about your chances. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I like what they're doing right now, playing the young guys and, and kind of seeing what you have going forward. And as a matter of fact, it's paid off so far. I mean, we've won the first couple games. Mm-hmm. Uh, the young guys look good and they're, they're playing, you know, loose out there and they're playing with no pressure. Uh, they know that, they're going to play 30 minutes tonight. They, they know that they're going to be able to make mistakes and, and Pop's not going to pull them. And so you have guys right now that are just letting it flow. They've got a, a sense of freedom out there, and it's paying off for us. And we're getting a chance to see our young guys uh, shine and, and see what you have going forward. Sure. And, and you're one of the most storied college players of all time, University of Arizona's leading scorer still at this time. Uh, the NCAA season up in the air, really. Do you think there's any way they can make it work safely to have these kids in college and playing? I'm, I'm not sure. I, I think right now, when I look at what's going on in, in all the sports, the only way that anything's going to work is probably in a bubble. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, you can control the variables. You can control the environment around uh, the players can't do that in college no and furthermore you know you these guys coming in 18 19 years old how are you going to tell them to socially distance and not go to the frat party yeah and and stay away from your girlfriend or other people and that's just not going to happen i think the the players uh, in the nba obviously you know they've done a great job of respecting each other and respecting the the mission or the goal and what the league's trying to achieve so they've done a great job of kind of policing themselves and staying uh uh, in the quarantine. I don't think you can pull that off with 
a bunch of college kids. Yeah. Well, before sports did come back, fans clung on to the last dance on ESPN. I think one of the big revelations that people took out of it was that Michael Jordan sure hated the Pistons. Uh, you were <laughs> on the Detroit Pistons in 93-94. That is the last dance season. Yeah. Do you remember anything from those matchups uh, with the heated kind of feelings that, that he gave off during the doc? Well, I got there in 93-94, and Michael, that was um, the year, I want to say the first year that he had retired, and then he came back the next year, mm-hmm. uh, halfway through the season. So, yeah, the Bulls were still good. Uh, they were still a good team, but the Pistons weren't the same Pistons. Right. You know, it was Isaiah, Joe, and uh, Bill Lambeer, essentially, that were left over from those bad boy teams. The, the rest of the guys, the rest of that roster wasn't there. and so. You know, there wasn't a lot of talk about it. You know, I, I had watched those matchups. I was, you know, obviously not only a player, but a huge fan of just watching games. And so I'd seen all that drama unfold. But but there wasn't a lot of talk about it, honestly, uh, in Detroit anymore. Wow. So you didn't hear any Isaiah talk about Jordan and stuff while all that kind of, is he coming back? Is he, is he, I mean, it was such a big deal in those seasons right before he came back. You didn't hear anything kind of going on? No, no, I didn't. Uh, they they didn't really talk about it a lot, and I know why because it it didn't end well for them. No. and so uh, I'm sure they didn't want to rehash, you know, what Michael had done to them that last season. After this, more with San Antonio Spurs legend and current analyst Sean Elliott. Right now, Feeding America is working tirelessly to ensure our most vulnerable populations, like students who are out of school, the elderly, individuals whose jobs are impacted, and low-income families continue to have access to food and other needed resources during the COVID-19 pandemic. The Feeding America Food Bank Network is committed to serving communities and people facing hunger in America, and their greatest need is donations and support of local food banks. This podcast is committed to donating a portion of the proceeds from the show to Feeding America, and we hope that you can join us in this effort too. Find out how you can help at feedingamerica.org backslash COVID-19. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
And now the rest of my chat with Sean Elliott. With the world finally waking up to a lot of the racial injustices uh, for the past hundreds of years in our country, uh, really sparked by the murder of George Floyd, I thought about you a little bit when I was researching, because I went to University of Arizona for a year. Mm-hmm. I uh, went to Tucson, Arizona, then transferred to USC. Okay. Why, why in the world did you do that? I, 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 listen, <laughs> I'm, from, I'm from LA. You couldn't keep me there. Uh, I, okay, okay, I got you. I'll tell you, other than Bison Witches, that sandwich restaurant, which I still think about once a week, uh, I, I, I don't miss a ton there, because I'll be honest with you, I did hear a lot of racism in Tucson, Arizona, and I wanted to know what your experience was like growing up there and playing there, especially because you played in Texas, which isn't necessarily known for its unity. Well, yeah, there was a lot of racism in Tucson. You know, there was. I mean, that's the reality of it. There's racism everywhere, but there was racism in Tucson. And, you know, I got called names plenty of times or got looks, and, you know, my, my mother grew up in Mississippi, Holly Springs, Mississippi. And so, you know, I'd come home and tell her, hey, mom, you know, this happened today or this happened. And she'd say, well, that's racist. And you don't have to stand for that. But I would, you know, I was still young and naive and say, oh, mom, come on, you know, not all that can be racist. And then as I got older, you know, lo and behold, my mom got a lot smarter Uh in my eyes. So, yeah, I mean, there was just definitely that. There's no, there's no way to avoid it. And, And Tucson is a lot more liberal than probably any other towns in, in, in Arizona. So, but while I still love Tucson, I wouldn't trade my experience growing up uh, there for anything. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, definitely had uh, episodes and, and times that were tough. I, you know, it, it's hard to imagine. And a lot of people, when I tell them this, they go, no way. But literally in elementary school, I fought almost every day. Wow. Almost every single day I got in some kind of scuffle or fight almost every day. And and what percentage of that school was white? It was all, all white. I mean, all white and Hispanic, I think, coming up all the way until the sixth grade uh, when I uh, moved and I went to a school that had a lot more black students. I mean, up until that time, I mean, I was like, I'd be one of the only two black kids in school, two or three yeah. black kids in school. And so, you know, it's like, you know, the one story that I, that I tell is when Ruth came out, mm-hmm. you know, the teacher would was talking about it in class and like every time she would say something about the slaves, everybody's turning around looking at me like I'm some kind of authority. Wow. And then when I, the, the one instance that really got me in a lot of trouble was when I got off the bus one day and I had about 20 or 30 kids waiting for me when I got off the bus and they were tanning roots. Oh my God. And so I just, yeah. So I just got off the bus, just ready to swing. Uh-huh. And I was just already, you know, it was already tense because, you know, I was watching the miniseries, too. So this is what you did. It was only three television channels. Not like you had, you know, 500 channels to watch. So everybody sat down at night and watched Roots. And so I watched it. And, you know, I'd get the Kunta Kintes and the Toby or, you know, people call you Chicken George, you know, thinking it's funny. And so it, was a, it wasn't the best time for, you know, maybe it was the best time for a young black kid. Yeah, that is brutal. Uh, I, 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 It's weird because... You think a school like University of Arizona is liberal arts to an extent, and uh, I remember so vividly going there and being shocked, I guess maybe because it's such a feeder school for Scottsdale, which is like Snowtown, it's so white, but like the, <laughs> I, I, the, the, the thing about about black kids that were at U of A, it was, it was mostly athletes, and I went there in 97, 98, I mean, it didn't feel like a very diverse campus at all. Uh, well, you know, most of the black kids that I went to school with in Arizona were athletes, maybe all of them. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had a, a funny instance. Um, 
we were all of us were in freshman English. So, so uh, my recruiting class, six guys, five were black. Mm. The the one uh, white guy that was on our team was from Iowa, uh, and the five of us, the five black freshmen, we all tested into English 100, mm-hmm. I believe it was, and so all of us were taking the same class at the same time, and we had a black professor. And we were discussing a book about a black musician. And a white girl raised her hand. Uh, we, we were finished discussing this book, and the white girl raised her hand. And in class, she asked, she said, if black people's bottom of their feet are white and their hands white, or their hands are white, are their butts white too? <laughs> Sean. And the, yes. <laughs> The class erupted. Uh, Bruce Wheatley was laying on the floor laughing. Uh, the teacher was chuckling. He he didn't know what to say. Some of the other students were like, I mean, my goodness, haven't you ever seen like National Geographic? Right. I mean, it was a time where, you know, it was so funny. It wasn't offensive. It was just like, my goodness, like people really don't know. I, they don't know about black people. Sean, I'll tell you this one, and I don't mean to dog U of A, because I really, I, I, it, honestly, the education there was much better than, than you would think based on the things you're hearing right now. I actually learned a lot of stuff that was, I, I think I learned about HD television there for the first time in like 96. Yeah. But, but I will say, I have a friend, Adam Pally, great comedian. He showed up on this podcast once recently, and he has a story. We went there at the same time, and he has a story where he went on a date with a girl, and she asked, and he thought she was kidding. Uh, she asked where his horns were because he was Jewish, and uh-huh. she, he thought she was joking, so yeah. they laughed, and then she wasn't laughing, and she had been taught by her parents that Jewish people have horns. Yeah, yeah. I've heard a similar story like that from uh, one of our uh, media relations people in Detroit, the same thing where one of her black girlfriends went out actually with a, a white girl and the white girl picked her up and said, hey, that's this cute dress. Where where do you hide your tail? Unbelievable. So, I mean, but, it, it, you know, that kind of thing, when I hear that, I don't get offended because I've heard so many. I mean, we could sit here for an hour. Yeah. And, yeah. and I could tell you this kind of story. And some people will think that, oh, that, that can't that possibly happen. It, it happened. Yeah, it happened. And, and, and I guess, you know, to, to sum it up and not make people so sad about what we're hearing, the good news is in 2020, we have a great awakening that's going on. You see it with the NBA, with the, you know, the social issues, like you said, they're facing so elegantly. And I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy to see where we're at this year, at least. You know, I'm happy that the conversation is still going on. Yeah, uh, I'll be honest with you, Jensen. I mean, I'm I've become really cynical, and I'm I'm wondering if a year from now, if we're just going to be in the same situation. Uh, I hope not, Sean. Or er- everybody forgets about it, and it's going to take something else, and we're, everybody's going to start writing again. Are are we, you know, really set up to make a change? Uh, a big part of me feels like we are, because the younger generation, they're they're woke, if you will. Yep. And they they have friends from, that are different colors, different sexual orientation, and they're open about it. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, our generation wasn't. I, I was with a group of friends the other day. We were talking about the same thing. And I, and I, I said, hey, how many of you guys went to school with a, a gay guy? And they were like, well, well, you know, it was an older, uh, obviously an older group of, of people. And they're like, well, we didn't know they were gay because they weren't open. I'd say exactly. Yeah. You know, we went to school with all kinds of people um, that had to hide who they were, uh, hide their uh, their true self 
from us because we were, you know, so backward and intolerant back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And now this new generation, they're not like that. You know, my, my daughter and uh, my kids, all our kids are now out of college. But when they were in high school, even a few years back, they had friends that they knew were gay yeah. or, or lesbian. And so, you know, the whole way that they think and the way they're brought up now is different. They're way more tolerant of each other than our generation and our previous generations were. And so that kind of gives me hope that the younger generation is going to, you know, topple this thing and put us over the edge and, and really, really change hearts and change minds. Same. I I depend on them. So let's end on a bit of a uh, goofy note here. During this odd time in history, you've been hosting a show on Zoom, geniusly titled Between Two Spurs. Uh, It's a 25-minute Zoom interview with Spurs legends like Avery Johnson and David Robinson. I wanted to end the interview by me bringing up some past Spurs players, maybe some obscure ones you didn't think about, and you tell me if you think they'd make a good Zoom interview. Yes. Okay, first... He only played one season on the Spurs, 89-90, but you blab. Uwe Blob. <laughs> yes. Uwe Blob. You say it better than I do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's a big German guy. Went to Washington. That's a good question because I can hardly remember Uwe, and even though I played against him in college. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's, that's a tough one. All right. All right. We'll hold off on that one. That's a good one. I'm not sure. Okay, well, hold off. Maybe you'll hear the other ones and you'll you'll set up who you want. Two, I, he played one okay. season, 76-77. I didn't even know he was a spur. Mike D'Antoni. Mike D'Antoni. I think Mike D'Antoni would be a really good Zoom interview. Okay. Because I he's been around here and there, and he's got a good personality. I think he's just a, generally he's a good guy, so... Uh, he, he would be a good interview. All right. Uh, this one's a, a, an old teammate of yours. He played one season, 93-94. Sleepy Floyd. Uh, Sleepy Floyd. Uh, I missed Sleepy Floyd by a year. Um, he was, I think, 87, 88. So I missed him. But I admired him when he was in college. I loved his nickname. Okay. And I was a big college basketball fan. So I would love to interview Sleepy Floyd. Okay. Moving on. Uh, this guy... One of NBA's largest personalities played one season on the Spurs, fifteen sixteen. Boban. Boban is the best. Okay. I mean, God, what what a great dude! Yes, absolutely love Boban Marjanovic. Yes, if you said no, I would have been very mad. All right, two seasons <laughs> on the Spurs, oh nine through eleven. Antonio McDice is he a good interview in twenty twenty? Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, he is because uh, just a, a cool, cool dude. Loved the way he played early on in his career. When he played for the Denver Nuggets, oh, he was a nightmare. He nightmare. was one of the only guys. He was the only one of the only guys that gave Tim Duncan problems. Oh, he he could jump out the gym too, man. It was what an athlete. Yes, he could, and he could shoot it. He could shoot it with decent range. I mean, he he had a great uh, low post game. He was he was a lot of fun to watch. All right, this one maybe didn't have as great of an NBA career. Great in college, one season with the Spurs, oh one oh two, Cherokee Parks. <laughs> he would be a great interview. <laughs> Uh, free spirit. Yeah, free spirit. The tattoos and stuff now. He's out of his mind. Yeah, yeah, but cool. Another cool, just, I mean, down-to-earth guy that y- you can have a great conversation with. He'd sit down with anybody and uh, and have a good time. Just salt-of-the-earth type of guy. Love it. Last one. One season with the Spurs. And again, a guy I didn't even know. I'd see him as a Nick, I guess. I don't know. Oh three oh four. Charlie Ward played on the Spurs? Uh, Charlie Ward. He would be a good interview on me anytime because he's you know, Heisman Award winner. Yeah. Uh, ends up playing uh, NBA basketball. How, how many guys have done that? None, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's he's got quite a resume. And you know, he's, 
he's he's been in some battles and 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 watching Florida State and Miami back in the day. Yep. You know those were the games that people would I mean clam around the TV set to watch. Guys were hitting each other. They were so exciting. Yeah. That was some of the best football that was being played. Yeah, and Charlie Ward had had he. he Threw some dimes. Even in the NBA, he was a pretty good assist guy. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he was. He was fun to watch as a quarterback. I mean, he could scramble. He could. He had an arm. Yeah, he was. He was fun to watch. Well, Sean, I appreciate the candid talk and stay safe and healthy. And uh, we're excited for Spurs basketball. Yes, sir. Anytime. The sports bubble is produced and distributed by Treefort Media. The show is executive produced by Kelly Garner, Lisa Ammerman, Matthew Kugler, and me, Jensen Karp. Tom Monahan is our senior audio engineer and sound supervisor, with production and editing by Jasper Leak. Additional production help from Tim Schauer, June Rosen, and Haley Mandelberg. Our theme music is composed by Spilkes. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe, rate us, and review us on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please visit feedingamerica.org. If you're able to make a donation, any amount makes a difference, and you can learn more about other ways you can help on their website. For more information on the Sports Bubble, links to the socials, and for show transcripts for our hearing-impaired listeners, go to treefort.fm. Be safe and be well. The Sports Bubble is a production of iHeartRadio and Treefort Media. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 